You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. You're listening to Look It Up with John Tristan and Will Langston, a podcast that covers current news, hot topics, and modern mysteries of the world. A weekly podcast that documents the phone conversations about the latest global talking points. Listen to two funky friends riffing on the freshest issues of the day. Tune in, turn on, and look it up. Uh, Let's work with uh, two definitions of nationalism. One is what I call absolute supremacist nationalism. Uh, That's where one person thinks that, uh, or any person thinks that their nation is the best nation. And the other kind of nationalism is what I call hard border nationalism, where someone thinks that a nation, nations are just good ideas and they're skeptical of international or supranational organizations like the UN or the EU. Um, so uh, the dictionary definition of nationalism is an ideology that places the interests of the state over the interests of individuals or groups, uh, especially when it's to the detriment of other nations. Um, Not only when it's to the detriment of other nations, just especially so. uh, Both of the definitions that I broke it down into fit within that. So, yeah. Yeah, so I I think that's like the first problem with nationalism is that there's two separate definitions of it. And I think if you even expanded that idea, there's probably even more definitions of it, depending on the individual that you speak speak with. But the way I've always considered nationalism uh, to be is that people think that they're supreme, so that their country is supreme. So I guess that falls in line with more of one of those um, definitions that you've you've talked about. So are, are you talking about with hard border? Does that mean like you think that your country is awesome, but you're not saying screw all the other countries. Is that right? Right. I was thought about calling it like a preferential nationalism, but I thought hard border uh-huh. just kind of sounded cooler. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, hard border, what I call hard border nationalism is just saying, I like my nation. Um, it doesn't have, you don't have to do your nation the same way. But uh, I like my nation the way it is, and you like your nation the way it is, and that's good. Let's just kind of coexist in our own, uh, in our own atmospheres, in our own environments. Yeah. So I tend to break it down kind of like I think about like families, and uh, I mentioned this on the last podcast when we talked about immigration and the wall. Um, but if you were to think of it on a smaller ecosystem, um, I think nationalism can can be compared to your home. And that, you know, your home has fences around it and you have neighbors and you can be a neighborly individual without saying, hey, neighbor, uh, go screw yourself. You know, I don't like you. And without imposing some kind of imperialistic view on, on the people around you. And I think that's kind of like America. Like if we just talk about our own country, we've got our own, uh, you know, we've got our own country. We've got our own home, per se. But I don't think we say screw you. If anything, we're sort of a, a world police in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people look to us to, to help out in, in many ways. But, yeah, as far as being a nationalist uh, in the sense of the word where we say, hey, our country is better or supreme 
Um, and I've said this to you before, but I don't think America is supreme in every single way. Um, do I think it's supreme in some ways, like with freedoms? Absolutely. But not with everything. And I think that's where the word becomes tricky. The word is evolving. I mean, that's why we need uh, we need multiple definitions of it. And it really can't be understood in an abstract sense. Like you can't just kind of talk about nationalism in the same way that you might talk about uh, math in a vacuum. Uh, math doesn't change from culture to culture, but nationalism has evolved right. um, over the course of centuries. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to, uh, after we kind of deal with uh, some definitions, to talk about the history of nationalism and kind of explain how it evolved. But we can get to that later. Uh, in my research of nationalism, um, I'm not the, the smartest academic when it comes to this term. So I've had to research it over the last week. And in every single source and every single YouTube video or website that I found, I find the comparison between nationalism and patriotism. And so the most simplistic uh, definition of patriotism, uh, patriotism that I found online is that it's a love and devotion of one's country and support uh, of its interest. Whereas nationalism is extreme patriotic feelings where one believes in the superiority of one's country over another. So uh, in that sense, I consider myself a patriot of the United States of America. Uh, in almost every single way possible. Um, but would I say that I'm an extreme patriot? Uh, absolutely not. Um, did you, in your research of nationalism, um, did you did you find anything similar with patriotism? Yeah, actually, uh, when I was having a Twitter conversation on the Look It Up Twitter page, which uh, if you subscribe now, you can... Uh, enter sweepstakes for a free million dollar giveaway. Not, <laughs> don't hold this. I want to know who's funding that. <laughs> yeah, I got uh, I got Blackwater to fund that. I'm getting into some dark dark pockets. But, I think uh, I'm gonna enter that sweepstakes. <laughs> no, don't. we have to stay. Um, but yeah, I got into a, a conversation with some people um, off of a New York Times opinion article. And the opinion is, don't let nationalists speak for the nation. A uh, very critical article of nationalism. And um, I was talking to some people. I was kind of standing up for the idea of nationalism. Um, mm -hmm. And someone posted a cartoon or a comic strip which shows patriotism. And there's a guy with a shovel. And he says, I'm going to work on my house because it's the best house. And then nationalism that says, my, my house is the best house because it's my house. So it's kind of contrasting the idea of like someone who works to make something better uh, and someone who just thinks that whatever they own is the best. He posted another uh, comic strip, which comic strips aren't good references for advanced academic. <laughs> but this one says patriotism, pride in who you are, nationalism, pride in who you aren't. As in, like, you're, you hate everyone else. Patriotism, learning from history. Nationalism, reinventing history. Uh, so this is a super biased and um, incorrect view of what nationalism is. Uh, I mean, if, if you're talking about, it's myopic. You know, if you're talking about the kind of nationalism that says, um, 
that your nation is better than other nations uh, in every single way, then then it's correct. Um, but that's not the only kind of nationalism. It's if you if you think that's the only kind of nationalism, you're neglecting uh, a large amount of the conversation going on. I think that's one of the challenging things about the term, though, is that a lot of people that aren't uh, super educated on these terms just kind of align themselves with one meaning of the word and they don't research it. Um, they don't look things up per se. Mm -hmm. um, but the cool thing about that comic, it, the, the first one that you read about being my home, um, it, it's, it's pretty impactful to me because it seems like with, uh, you know, if we're going with the nationalism versus patriotism take here, um, I think patriots are more so for, for the, the home and for the community, whereas there's an egotistical approach when it comes to nationalism, um, at least going by the term that, you know, the supremacy term. And I know you outlined two uh, different, different meanings there, but if you go with, you know, my country is better than every, every other country, that's, that's so dangerous because you just think that every single thing that you do is so amazing and it's so awesome all the time and it just leaves – don't you think it leaves so much error for mistakes to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean if you think that uh, your nation or your – it applies to other things as well or your, uh, your family or your religion or your profession or your preferred music genre or your favorite kind of movies or whatever it is you're into – is the best and you have a lot invested in that then you're going to be um unwilling to accept critiques of that because so much of your identity is wrapped up in identifying with this thing that you think is uh is so fantastic that's uh, right and i think a lot of people uh we've all met people in the workplace and even some of our family members just people that think that everything they do is so amazing and you can instantly see the flaw in that. It doesn't leave any room for innovation or improvement. It, it, it become, you become stale as a human being. And I think that expands into bigger ecosystems like nations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's kind of like something that just popped into my head is like when I was in Thailand and uh, I was studying martial arts and I studied a mixed style of martial arts. And every now and then I would talk to a Thai person about Muay Thai and they would insist that Muay Thai is the best martial art of all of them, which it is a really, really good one. Um, one of the best for sure. But that doesn't mean there's nothing else to learn. Um, so that's just kind of an example. I think this might be a interesting place to for you and I to start talking about sort of our personal histories and personal backgrounds, how we've... Um, grown up and changed our ideas of how we feel in relation to our own nation. Absolutely. And I can, I can touch on that through travel, you know, as a lot of the listeners know, I listen or I, I live in teach in Thailand and you used to as well. Um, before I came out here, I'd say I was much more of a nationalist and I thought America was such an amazing force. And, and I still do in a lot of ways, but before I started traveling and going to different countries and hanging out in Southeast Asia and talking to people from different countries and different cultures, and then now living in Thailand for three years, you see advantages that other countries hold. Um, and that goes with, you know, personal relationships. Um, and that goes with also just the culture that you're immersed in. Um, so my personal background in nationalism is definitely, I had stronger feelings when I was younger. I always thought America 
was, you know, the best in the world. And I think a lot of that gets passed down um, when you're growing up, you know, with the 4th of July and fireworks and everyone's got American flags waving and, you know, dad's out there drinking a Bud Light, cooking, cooking hot dogs and hamburgers, talking about how amazing, you know, America is. That's, that's where my love for the country came from. And I'm also a natural citizen uh, of the States, but the longer that I've been away, the more that I've talked to other people and the more I've realized, Hey, America's not, uh, the, the greatest nation in, in the world. Um, it, it might be up there as far as freedoms go, but, um, when it comes to being supreme, n- no way. In what ways do you feel like America's behind other nations? I think race in some ways. Um, it, it seems like when you talk about racism, um, South Africa would be up there with apartheid and I have a lot of South African friends that have problems with racism, but you know, living in Thailand and Southeast Asia, there's a really big acceptance of other cultures. Um, Thailand seems to embrace a lot of other cultures in a big way. And I don't see a lot of race, r- racial issues, especially in the workplace. You know, I work with black teachers. I work with teachers from all sorts of different countries, Germany and England and, and other places. But it seems like whenever I, you know, turn on the TV or whenever I look at news in America, there seems to be some sort of racial issue going on. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I actually feel like uh, there's a couple things that I would say about the race situation in Thailand. Like, number one, Thailand is way more racially homogenized than America. America is one of the most racially diverse nations in the country. So it just kind of makes sense that there would be less racial um, problems inside of inside of Thailand. The other thing is that with the races that are there, I, I, personally, I've heard um stories from different people one of the first couple of teachers that i worked with uh were africans from africa and they felt like they were treated like garbage Uh, i worked with an indian teacher who had a lot of stories about how thai people treated him badly because he was indian um and thais don't always get along great with uh, people from myanmar um you might remember there was a um a famous case in Thailand, famous in Thailand, where a couple of tourists were murdered. And I guess I shouldn't mention this because I don't really know what happened, but a lot of people believe that a couple of uh, Burmese people were framed for it. But uh, in general, like I had an experience with a Burmese person. Uh, I won't go into into the details, but there's a lot of instances where they're not treated so well. yeah, I mean, you don't read like tons of newspaper stories about racial conflict in in Thailand, but personally, I saw underneath the surface, I feel like I saw a lot of it, including with uh, white people as well. Yeah, and, and that's the beautiful thing about experience is that everyone's going to have separate experiences. Um, but you, with racism, um, I felt it a lot from my black friends in America, and I would hear their plights just as you heard them in Thailand. And, and I'm not trying to say that Thailand is, you know, much better. I'm just saying it seems better to me. Um, but I wouldn't even compare Thailand. And I think there's other countries that are far more accepting. You know, Canada to speak of, um, you know, just, just off the top of my head. Um, but I, yeah, I would say, I say, I would say racism. I think we're still working on that, um, with the civil rights still not too far behind us. Um, I would also say, obesity we're super up there with obesity 
I know proficiency. I know we're not number one in proficiency. I think the last time I looked, uh, a friend and I were looking it up, I think we were 15th or 16th in proficiency. So it would be impossible for us to say, in my opinion, that we are the best in every area. And I've, I'm sure if you looked at more metrics, you could find more on it. Um, uh, what about you? Do, you? do you think America is is the best in the world at everything? No, I don't think America is the best of the world at everything. In terms of freedoms, like you said, like the freedom of speech, the freedom to bear arms, there's are two things that are pretty uniquely American. Uh, other nations, absolutely, yeah, other nations have similar freedoms, but I, I don't think I don't know if there is any other nation that has to the extent that we have the freedom of speech, um, which is something that I really didn't fully grasp and comprehend until I lived outside of America, nor the, nor the freedom to bear arms. Um, just kind of didn't even, guns have never been a big part of my life, but like suddenly realizing that I couldn't get one if I wanted to was kind of interesting. <laughs> um, like I said, uh, I'm with you on the sort of race problem that America has. Like Thailand doesn't have a, a race problem like America has, although Thailand does have race problems. Absolutely, um, and I think a lot of that is just due to the fact that America is so, so extremely diverse. Um, so I, I just think that deserves to be mentioned. Uh, it's kind of like saying you don't have a, you wouldn't have a problem with feline AIDS in a cat in a country that had no cats, kind of. Thing, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, That's yeah. A crazy example, but um, that was just the first thing that I could think of. Um, you know, I think other nations do education better. I think other nations probably do. I mean, a lot of other nations have much better infrastructure than we do. Those are a couple things that, uh, I, yeah, I would say America definitely needs to develop. And there's yeah, more. Yeah, oh, there's there's a lot more. I know we're just we're just scratching the surface here. I know tuition rates for for education uh, is, is super high as well. I mean, almost every single person I know being a teacher out here uh, teaching in Chiang Mai has student debt. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very rare that you meet someone doesn't have a ton of student debt. But then when I talk to my friends that come from Germany, um, they're like, you have student debt? Our, our college is free. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And I don't know quality of education um, in comparison. I, I have to look at each country individually. I suppose all I'm saying is that I just don't think we are. Um, but when it comes to my personal background, it's I think I was much more stronger of a nationalist than I am now. Uh, and I think the more that I think about it, the more that you and I talk about it, the more I realize how much more of a patriot I am uh, in comparison to, to a nationalist. Do you, do you feel like you're a nationalist or do you feel like you're, you, you've lost a bit of being a nationalist over the years? I, I'm curious where you stand as far as a national, maybe we should define the term for you as well. What what you consider a nationalist? I know you've got two that you've outlined already. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hard bordered nationalist. I'm an American nationalist, um, okay. in the sense that I don't think America is the best nation in the world, always and forever, in every possible way. But I think uh, for me, I I like I think America is the best nation for me to live in. One of the reasons that I moved back here is because I think because I think that and Taco Bell. That's the other Taco Bell is right. huge. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I spit on Taco Bell as someone who's authentic <laughs> Mexican food. Taco Bell is garbage, but um, they got their first uh, Taco Bell in Bangkok like a few months ago. My girlfriend brought me some. Uh, it was really expensive um, compared 
compared to what the States is, but it was so delicious. Oh my God. It was, it was just incredible. I've always thought um, Ted would like Mexican food. So we'll see how that goes. It's but, growing, uh, man. It's yeah. growing. I, I, I hope they get more. I want Chick-fil-A. That's my next hope out here is that we get Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I started when I was young, I was super patriotic. I think it was my second grade teacher who taught us all about the American revolution and like what, what nine-year-old boy isn't going to be like swept away by the story of ragtag <laughs> rebels who overthrow this oppressive king? Um, dress so up much like, bloodshed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I thought I used to have like a toy rifle and a, a raccoon skin hat. I'd like run around yelling like, "No, rep- no taxation without representation." So I was like, so I started playing the trumpet when I was ten, and I had a book of like patriotic songs <laughs> that I thought were awesome. Um, so I was like, you're like crazy. a little, you're like a little Davy Crockett running around. <laughs> I was like a little American fascist back then. But, um, <laughs> so that's how I started out. And then I remember, this is a weird thing to remember, but I remember thinking Captain America was stupid at some point because I thought like, why is like there a superhero who's just like America? It's like, a, a, like, that's a thing. Like Batman's cool. Like uh, he's a bat. Like that's kind of mysterious. But like, oh, he's just an America man. I thought that was so dumb. And I also like never got sports when I was a kid because I was like, how do I know which team I'm supposed to like? And then they're like, just like the team that, you know, is from where you're from. And I'm like, well, that's a stupid, arbitrary way to like it. So it's weird that I had that uh, when I was little. But um, anyway, I think I always had I did have this part of my personality that kind of grew as I got older. That was like, it's dumb to like things just because they're where you, they're where you're from. I guess it makes sense that I had all these stories in my head about how great American history was, but eventually I got a lot more cynical about America. When I was a freshman, I had a teacher who taught us some really dark things about American history, like the Iran Contra affair Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was manufactured news, which got us into the Vietnam War. And some of the things that just put America in a really, really bad light for me. And so I got to this place where I still had a love for my land, but I felt like the government had become completely corrupt. And not to mention 9-11 and then the Iraq War. And I, after that, I became like quite nihilistic about the nation. I didn't really want to think, think about it. But ironically, um, as opposed to you, traveling made me feel more patriotic because as I learned more about the world, I realized that um, I don't I don't really think any other nation is like significantly way better than America is. I actually found a lot of people sneer unjustly at America, especially people from like UK and Australia. Uh, I don't know why those two nations seem to jump to mind, but I meet more of those people who feel like America is just this horrible backwards land and they've never been there. So it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said before, kind of like living in a land where I wasn't free to say whatever I wanted to say and I didn't have other freedoms. Um, and I was also like treated as a minority, uh, as a, as a foreigner, you know, something else that kind of strikes me moving back is like, I teach free English lessons now. I mean, I get paid, but my students don't pay for their lessons. There's no free Thai lessons for foreigners in Thailand. Like, unless you there actually are, 
They, they actually what? have them. Really? Um, yeah, they have these small meetups. Um, you can go on Facebook now where they actually – there's some really generous Thai – um, Thai people that will meet you at coffee shops and they have meetups where they'll actually teach you to, to speak Thai now. Um, I actually haven't done it, but I have a few friends that have invited me um, and I, I haven't made it out. But I want to say the contrast between our experience is really valuable. And I think, um, you know, when you talk about being more patriotic while traveling, um, I definitely can see where, where you get that. And it's, in some ways, it's solidified some of my thoughts as far as being a patriot. But in others, I think it expands your mind to consider, hey, man, um, we might be a really great nation and, and possibly the greatest of our time, but that doesn't mean we're the best in everything. And that's what I want to get to when it comes to me formulating my opinion on this. And I think we're really, really great. We're, we're fucking amazing in, in so many different ways. And I think that's why a lot of people look to us as sort of a beacon of light. But I think alternatively, there are definitely other ways – and other ways to think about the world and how we're not always the best. And that and that's just that's just the point that I wanted to get at is that even though we're a really great nation, we got we gotta remind ourselves that we're not great in everything. We can always improve. Yeah, and that's that's my danger with nationalism. That's that's my fear, I should say, of nationalism, is that we, we really gotta we really gotta keep an open mind for improvement. I'm not saying you're doing that, by the way. I'm not saying, oh, John, you're a white nationalist at all. I'm just saying as a country, as a whole, I don't want people to think that, you know, we're, we're always amazing at everything we do. And, and a lot of people in Thailand and in Southeast Asia are correct. Americans walk in a room and they're loud and rambunctious and knocking things over. And uh, one of my Thai friends said, I always know who an American is because they're loud, the, the loudest person in the room. That may be true, um, but... I think to some extent, America is still a really, really good country, and maybe some people overlook it. Do you think there's anything that America is not good at besides education? I know you mentioned that, and we talked about racism just a little bit. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind? Right now, the biggest problem that America has is uh, it's a social problem. It is a communication problem. Um, between whom? Between the left and the right ends of the political spectrum. Social media has probably made it worse. So this is kind of a good example to like say like, you know, I had this interaction with these people on Twitter where their definitions of these words don't even match mine. And we had directly addressed that in our conversation. It was like the guy said, we're not even agreeing on definitions. I was like, you're right. Let's Let's agree. And even then we couldn't really have a productive conversation. So it's just so different when you talk to a person face-to-face -face than when you talk to a person um, through a keyboard. Um, I think it's almost always better uh, to have a face-to-face -face conversation or at least a, a, a live voice chat kind of conversation like we're having now. So that problem isn't exclusive to America. I don't think all nations are as into social media as we are. Although it seems like as soon as they get social media, they get into it. So I don't think I think like no nation is immune to it. But um, if you ask me just in general, something I think America could do better. It's we've got to figure out how to remember when someone else has a different opinion that you do that you don't just shut the door and say this person isn't this person is a Nazi or this person is a libtard 
And but why? But why do more. we? I, John, I sorry to cut you off. But I wholeheartedly huh? agree with you. Wholeheartedly agree with you. But why do we do that? You and I joked about Alex Jones before, and I noted in the last podcast that one of my problems with Alex Jones, among many, <laughs> was that it seems like Alex Jones, um, not to point him out or bring him up, but it seems like he thinks that he's always correct about everything. And, mm-hmm. and so he just he, – he shouts really loud. He yells really loud. But he kind of personifies what a lot of other people in America are doing. Uh, they I totally agree with you, John. I couldn't have said it better. I, I think it is a communication problem. You, you and this guy on Twitter couldn't even agree on a term. So if you can't agree on a term, how can you possibly talk about anything? Yeah, I mean, I really I think, like I said, I think the, the solution has got to be actually talking to people face-to-face. Uh, I don't think like typing out Twitter tweets at each other or uh, I used to have a Facebook group where, you know, there's no limit, um, but it was a political Facebook group and people could type out, you know, I typed out essays to people and uh, sometimes I wouldn't even get a response after I put a ton of thought into a con, not to, not to cry about what I've been, um, you know, um, I, I lost friendships really because of that. A Facebook group I tried to do I, I wanted to like have a community of people who would I didn't want to have fights at all I wanted to like have a mutual education sphere um, but it turned into a battleground so I just think uh, that social media is not conducive to having these nuanced conversations um, and getting face to face is a lot more important um, for a lot of reasons one of the problems too is it's kind of become like a game. It's come, it's become like a two-party game. In almost any YouTube video I watch or any article that I read or blog that I read, they kind of condemn the other side. They they say you're a crazy leftist or you're a nationalist righty. Mm-hmm. There there doesn't seem to be too much middle ground. How how can anyone join a party when they just firmly say I stand with one side? Isn't it possible to be right wing but still believe abortion's okay? Like, isn't that a total possibility? Um, and that gets down to nationalism in in its essence to me. Like, isn't it possible to be a nationalist or someone that thinks that your country is amazing and great without thinking that it's supreme? And I think that's where it gets down to your definition with the what, what did you call John? Um, sorry, hard border nationalism. That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at is maybe there needs to be another term invented or, or possibly multiple terms invented so that we have better communication uh, on what we're actually speaking about. I, I think a lot of people don't listen to each other. Like you said, you type out full essays to people and people wouldn't even listen to that. I don't think you're in the minority. I think there's a majority of people who try to say something, but the other side doesn't listen to them just off a of principle. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we've talked about nationalism and patriotism, and then we're, we've talked a little bit about America's issues. Um, do you think now we should talk about the other side of it, which which is globalism? Yeah, we should. Uh, we could touch on that. Should I just jump into it? Yeah, yeah, go for it, man. Um, I know you're a little bit more versed in, in this globalism and nationalism than I am. Yeah, absolutely. So – I want to do a couple more definitions for globalism, um, sure. at least for the purposes of this conversation. I want to call globalism the idea of um, specifically giving power to supranational 
and international organizations like the UN and the EU. Yep. And I want to call globalization something else. I want to call globalization the increase of trade, uh, travel, and communication between various nations. So if you look up in the dictionary, uh, globalism, it's going to say something about um, creating national policy with a global conscious uh, consciousness. Um, so I'm not going along with the, with the dictionary definitions for the purposes of this conversation, but I think that, again, this is a huge idea. It's a very new idea. And in order to talk about what I think is important to talk about, I want to go with the definitions that I made. Fair enough? Yeah, yeah, that that's fair enough. I think even by just uh, going into that separation between globalization and a globalist, those were your two terms, correct? Yeah, globalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, globalism. I, I think that already clears a lot of things up. I know you're going to get into it, but it already uh, made a light pop in in my head. Um, you, you said was um, it's what the sharing of ideas. Other way around. Globalization is trade, talk and travel is the handy way to remember it. Right. Sorry. OK, that's what I was saying. So that's it's possible to be a patriot and it's possible to be someone that really supports your country without being an asshole. And I think yeah. that's what that's what that term will help a lot of people see. Uh, I don't know if you want to expand on that more. Sure. I mean, uh, I think globalization is inevitable. Globalization, in a sense, isn't uh, modern. The Silk Road was probably the first huge step forward in uh, globalization, being the trade route that extended from, I want to say, Beijing uh, all the way to Europe, up to uh, I think the end. The other end of it was Rome, where um, goods would travel um, all the way from Asia to Europe, uh, literally on wheels, and that was during the Roman Empire. So that was a globalizationist uh, moment in history. And Isn't a more contemporary version of that the internet? Yeah, yeah, the internet, uh, plane travel, and. That's between those two things. That's those are two really the driving forces of, of, uh, of globalization, along with uh, cargo ships that transport huge amounts of cargo between nation to nation. So that's trade. That's a in one word you could simply say trade because communication and travel are both forms of trade in a sense. So yeah, uh, I'm not opposed to that. Uh, that's just the way the world is going. And if you, you know, the opposite of that is isolationism and nations that are isolationists suffer because trading is profitable. <laughs> so that's pretty simple. Um, and yeah, unless there's anything else about that, I'd, I think it's a good idea to go on to globalism and how that's different and the problems that I have with that. Yeah, I just I just want to note before we move on as an artist um, and an art educator the idea of sharing ideas to me is a beautiful thing. You know, in the past you would have museums and if you wanted to see the Mona Lisa, you would have to go to the Louvre to see it. Um, and with the spread of ideas in the internet, you can just type in on Google and have a million versions of, of that painting along with parodies and everything else you can, you know, you, you could probably find porn on the Mona Lisa. Um, everything uh, that you could possibly think of exists on the internet. And I, I am a huge proponent 
uh, for the spread of ideas. Uh, so when you talk about trade, I just want to note that ideas as well as everything else you can trade is super important. And, and I'm for it as well. Yeah, I'm with you. We should like it. It's a wonderful thing and a beneficial thing for humanity to learn about itself. I think one of the best things for humanity is to think of itself as a universal brotherhood, which is ironic because uh, I'm about to talk about how we need to stay divided, <laughs> but um, in, in, in a nationalistic sense. So anyway, let's talk about um, globalism and how that's different from globalization. So sure. like I said, this isn't the dictionary definition of globalization, uh, excuse me, of globalism, but um, it's definitely something that people talk about a lot. And in a word, globalism is the idea that national borders are um, dissolving uh, at this moment in time, and that more and more we need to combine nations to create trades and, uh, excuse me, pacts and agreements between nations and to establish international bodies to regulate the interactions between nations. So that's a super technical sounding definition, but just think of the UN is a, is a great example of a globalist organization. Uh, so is the EU, uh, NAFTA, I would say it was a, not a, it was a, something of a globalistic trade agreement. So yeah, there's various, uh, the WTO, the world trade organization. So I have problems with these. I just want to note, uh, um, I'd like to talk a little bit. And I know you probably disagree with me on this a little bit, but you mentioned uh, the UN and the EU, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to the EU, that's a more contemporary issue with Brexit and all the challenges that they're facing right now. There are definitely positives to that. And I've had a lot of conversations with friends from England about this, um, and people on both sides of the coin um, that align with both sides of it. But I wanted to just say there are definitely if you if you look at it and you and I haven't lived in the EU or under the EU in any way but you know when it comes to tax free trading among the members or or even opening up opportunities like job wise or education opportunities for those people um, even with countries that are more poor than other countries when they join the EU it it expands their opportunities and it expands the possibility for trade to happen um, between those countries. And, and I think in a lot of ways, that's those, those two things are really positive to me. Um, I can see the dangers in having common currency. I, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. You know, just playing devil's advocate for a second, can you not see any positives to, to things like the EU? Uh, I, I mean, I, no, I definitely see that there's positives. I think one of the most obvious positives is that uh, a citizen of the EU can travel between uh, European nations without even a passport. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, that's great. I, I talked to a, a friend of a friend who has a, is uh, the director of a school in uh, the Czech Republic about this exact issue. And he said he was torn. And his favorite thing about the EU was that very fact that he could travel so freely. Um, at the same time, he felt bad because the EU is undemocratic in, in many, many ways. You know, the leader, Juncker, is not a uh, elected official. So, um you know, just imagine if uh, Canada, America, or Canada, the United States, and Mexico were in some kind of an international organization, and there was a leader over it who you didn't get to vote for. Uh, 
that doesn't feel good. I mean, that's just not <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if you're not, if you're led by an unelected representative, then that's tyranny in a sense. So, um, and there's a lot more concrete examples of how the EU has failed. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah, and and I'm I'm with you. I don't think the EU is that great of an idea, um, but um, to me, uh, I I just want to point out that. There are definitely positives. Some of the things we're we're talking about, um, it, it, just like when we were talking about nationalism, just to bring it kind of full circle. You know, you take the United States, like we were saying earlier. There's a lot of good that's come out of the United States. It's not it's not that everything we do is amazing. There's there's bad sides. There's good sides. But you know, with the EU, I'm not exactly for it as well. But I think the EU and um, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the UN's a little more touchy for me. Um, we, we can get into that if you'd like. But yeah, I just think having some kind of unification in, in some way is positive. I, again, though, you know, with unifying currency, I think shared wealth isn't always a good idea. And, you know, like leaving, look at, look at how hard it is for them to, for England to leave. It's becoming such a hard thing for them to do. It's almost becoming impossible uh, at mm-hmm. this point. But yeah, I just – sorry. I just wanted to put out there just for everyone listening, you know, I'm trying to bring up points that maybe if someone was on the other side of the coin might bring up while, while we're conversing because I know you and I agree on a lot. I'm just trying to, you know, just play devil's advocate. That's all. Yeah, for sure. There are good things about the EU. There are bad things about the EU. I think – I don't have a super strong opinion, but I would say from what I've seen, the EU is more bad than good. But um, yeah. yeah, there's definitely good things. Um I would like to explain why I think uh, nationalism, as in hard border nationalism, is superior to globalism, as in a one world government or just the general increasing of international super uh, international powers. Yeah, and I think we should just say that this is the big topic. This is the big talking point is is the nationalism and and globalism right i mean that that's really it, it seems like people fall into one side or the other and there's not a lot of crossover mm-hmm. um i just wanted to note that so if anyone's not really well versed on this like me um i didn't really know too much about nationalism and then nationalism led me to globalism being the other side of it um just for everyone listening that is the big topic that is the big issue that we're having right now is people can't either come to the other side or there's just no middle ground so yeah, I just want to make that caveat. Right. So I think that um, one of the most common arguments I hear uh, in favor of globalism, or even more specifically against nationalism, is that nations are arbitrary in the sense of their borders are just invisible lines in the sand, and you know cultures sort of bleed into one another, and um, people in favor of, of larger governments or one world government say that borders are arbitrary. That's not really true at all. Borders are settled by, not to be overdramatic, but by the blood spilled of of the people who decided that that border should be where it is. Um, you know, for the, for just for the example of America, you know, of the United States of America, excuse me, our nation was created so that, um, you know, first of all, it was settled so that Protestants and other religious minorities could have a place where they could worship as their conscience bid them to worship. And then eventually they declared it their own nation, uh, separate from Great Britain, when they felt that they were being treated unfairly by 
uh, by a monarch who was put into power simply by uh, the benefit of his genetic succession. And they felt so strongly about that they gave their lives. And I think it's, uh, I don't think it's right to ignore uh, people who die for something that they believe in. I think that you need to take seriously, um, and not just for the United States, for, you know, Thais have died for Thailand, Russians have died for Russian, um, and every nation in the world, uh, you know, has shed blood so that their borders would be where they are, um, and so that their specific cultures would live on. So I think that kind of attitude is really not respectful of that history. Um, but on a, on a lighter note, I think it's also really impractical in the sense that nations are uh, often, uh, almost always defined by language groups. Um, and when you have nations with mixed languages, you know, how, how hard is it being an English speaker in Thailand? <laughs> um, you can yeah. hear stories about uh, people living in French Canada. Um, that, that causes problems as well. You know, if you can't communicate directly with other people, it's, it's the most, it's the most formidable boundary to having a cohesive society. So just, and in other ways, and just in general, logistically speaking, um, in terms of transporting things across large areas and administering giant territories, um, uh, I think that that's something that globalists don't really consider. You and I have mutual friends that think that borders are arbitrary, and I, I, I think you know if you if you just look up the definition of a border, it'd probably say that it's it's an invisible line. It's what I mean. What is it really? What is a, what is a border really? Uh, it's a geographical boundary, and and you but you and I have mutual friends that think that this geographical boundary or this this line is just invisible, and in essence, it's just an idea. Our friends also say that in in the end, we'll all just be one huge nation state. Um, we'll all just be a, a collective, and and we're living we're we're living primitively, um, where we just say, hey, I'm gonna take my stick and and draw a line in that sand, and you're on that side, and I'm on that side, and if you cross it, I'll I'll kill you, and and if I cross that line on your side, you'll kill me. And, and they think that that's just primitive and that's just an old um, an old way of thinking. Whereas I, I, I tend to agree with you more that um, I think it's loony and I think it's ludicrous. And dying, dying for something doesn't necessitate good though. I, I should say that, you know, there's a lot of Nazis that died uh, in the name of something. Uh, I don't think it should be forgotten, but I don't think that just means that it was good that they, they gave their lives. I don't necessarily think that, but um, I do honor the borders that we have. America has tax-paying citizens that pay for their land, that work their lands and and own their lands. Um, and for other people to come in and 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 try to just start taking from that, to me, is an insult to the people that have worked so hard to keep that. Um, but now it doesn't mean you should just kill those people or just say, you know, screw off. Um, I'm, it, it's, that's, that's a really big point to me is, you know, treating other people with respect. Um, but going back to your point, yeah. What are, what are these borders that we're talking about between countries? I think, you know, they're, they're definitely just geographical separations, but they're not just an idea. I think they do mean more. There's more meaning behind them. Yeah. It's kind of funny that you, um, bring up the Nazis. I have a quote that I shared with you before from, one of my new favorite writers, probably my favorite writer right now, his name is G.K. Chesterton. 
Yeah, Dr. <laughs> Seuss, a.k.a. G.K. Chesterton, uh, said, um, as long as empires go about urging their ideas on others, I always have a notion the ideas are no good. If they were really so splendid, they would make the country preaching them a wonder of the world. That's the true ideal. A great nation ought not to be a hammer, but a magnet. So it's true that the Nazis died, um, but they died so that their borders would expand across the entire world. So <laughs> kind of ironically, it's like, and, you know, the same is true of the Napoleonic soldiers. The same is true of the Roman imperial soldiers and the Persian imperial soldiers, you know, the, the the nations that exist now are the nations are a lot of nations that have defended their their borders from imperialists like the UK, like France, um, Germany had to be put in its place. But um, yeah, I think that's an important distinction to remember when we talk about people who gave their lives. There's a big difference between people who gave their lives to take over on a, another territory and people who gave lives who gave their lives to keep secure the territory that, you know, they've existed in for generations. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I thought that quote was was really beautiful too. I thought that was that was really cool. Was that from the book or was that something that he said? I'm not sure what that's from. Uh, probably from a book. Chesterton wrote like hundreds of books or something. So John, um, we've talked about borders a little bit with with uh, with this, but what I know you're really against it. What what is what are you really against? What are your big reasons that you're against globalism? Well, I think the in 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 a short sense, um, the the biggest problems I have with globalism, as in a one world government, or a, a just a government a global governmental administration system, are are thus. First of all, it's in a sense putting all of our eggs in one basket. If a, if we have one global government, and that global government becomes corrupt which it almost certainly will because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We won't have an alternative. We won't have anywhere to run to, and we won't have any other government that of equal size to take it out. So that's the first problem. Uh, and a good analogy is by looking at the natural world, there isn't just one tree in the world. There isn't just one dog in the world. Uh, the law of survival has dictated that every single species has as many organisms as possible so that if one fails it doesn't mean that the entire species is gone and i think we should take a lesson from nature and do the same thing with our nations I'm so john i know something for a fact i know that you like will smith huge um, fan i just but, yeah i could just tell fresh prince yeah. that whole that whole era but you're going with the more nonfiction route and something i was thinking about was more of the fictional route and when humans talk about stories throughout history we we tend to try to foresee the future or maybe foresee problems and something that is kind of funny to me is uh, maybe an analogy to what you're saying is you're talking about one organism that when it goes down everything else goes down well in science fiction stories like like independence day i'm sure it's one of your favorite i'm sure you had it on vhs right in independence day when you take out the mothership all the other ships go down so it's it's when it's like when you take out one thing uh, in this super nation state alien race, everything else within that gets knocked out. You know, it's like an ant ant farm. Like when you kill the queen, the ants just panic. They don't know what else to do. And and that really is a scary thing. That's that's a very dangerous point when you give all the power 
uh, to every when, – when all the power is in one basket, like you're saying, like oh, you put all the eggs in one basket, you are basically screwing everyone because if that economy collapses, you're going to collapse. It, it's, it's dangerous. I, I suppose the, the other side of it would be people would say, oh, yeah, but if we were all one big nation, there'd never be any wars because there'd never be anyone to fight with. I don't think it would dissolve internal conflict, do you? No, and that's kind of the next point that I was going to bring up is that um, I think that globalism requires imperialism. It requires a world war because you've got to get everyone in the world to buy in on it, and that's just simply not going to happen. In particular, I would say there's two big groups of people who are for sure not going to buy into it, although there are others. China? Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not even joking. Like, if it was a liberal world order, meaning like, America and the UK and other Western powers. Uh, and China's not about that. China's about China being in control. So, I mean, that's why we're in a conflict, an economic uh, war with China right now. And, I have uh, a Chinese friend that actually said, he was like, you know, Trump ran on the whole slogan, uh, make America great again, um, America first. Uh, he, he lived in um, in China, and he was telling me that China actually has the same thing going on. They actually have in Chinese, um, they have shirts and hats and all sorts of products out there that say China first, make China great again. It's, it's kind of a satirical take on America, but a lot of people are saying that uh, China is actually very, very patriotic and even um, nationalist to some extent. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think every Chinese person I've met has actually been very patriotic and um, nationalistic. Or they're just apathetic. I haven't met anyone or very few people who are from China that were um, anti-patriotic or even critical of, of the of the government. But um, yeah, they definitely oppose the UN. They're not at good odds with the UN. Uh, Russia. So you're saying one of the one of the huge problems is that you're never going to get countries like China or shit. Even take America. You think America would ever want any part of of just saying, oh yeah, we're just gonna be one big nation, the whole world, and yeah. we're going to have to dismantle Trump or whoever may be president at the time. And there's no way. There, I, I can't see that ever happening. No way. Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting point because I think about one-third of America would be down with it, uh, and specifically yeah, yeah. just yeah. America. Um, the right would not be, and specifically the Christians would not be because you probably know, having been raised in a Christian home, that in the book of Revelations it says that Part of the end of the time, uh, the end of the world, is that the entire world will be united under one world government, uh, one ruler. So whether or not you believe that's true, you have to deal with the fact that Christianity is about 30% of the world's population. And a good number of those people are consider a one world government a sign of the Antichrist. And that's just Christianity. Muslims believe kind of the same thing, too. And that's another 15% of the world's population. So these nations that have Christians and Muslims are not going to be down with a one world government. And when I was younger, I had a youth group leader um, and I asked him, it wasn't just me, but we were, we were at this Christian camp over the summer and we got a chance to ask him questions about revelation and the end of times. And um, we asked him about that. And we said, you know, at the end, everyone's going to have the mark of the beast and there's going to be a, it's going to be one world under all. And all that, and we said, "How is that going to happen? No one's going to, no one's going to go for it." He said, "Will it happen slowly but surely? It's just like uh, Hitler's rise. You know, he didn't. It didn't just happen overnight. 
there was a slow chain of events that led to that event happening. Again, I'm not, I'm not going into like doomsday thinking or anything, but I would think that if there ever was a possibility of, of, you know, a, a huge movement towards becoming just one as, as the world, um, it would happen slowly, but surely. Um, but again, I just don't see superpowers like China and America doing that. I mean, I guess the only the only possible way I could see it happening is in the event of like a huge economic collapse where if let's say America fell and let's say China fell uh, economically and everything was in shambles and they came up with the idea, um, you know, the higher ups in the world came up with the idea that the only way to save the world and possibly the environment and the human race was to combine as one. You know, that I, I, that's the only possible way I can see, um, you know, us actually going that route. Uh, I hate to disagree with you, but I, I think that if we had a big economic collapse and China and the U.S. Um, were knocked down several hundred pegs, that would be a severe blow to uh, the process of creating a one world government because the both those nations play tremendous roles in, organi in organizing trans uh trans internet excuse me international partnerships i think what's more likely and who knows you know you could be right these are huge ideas but i think what's more likely is a creeping bureaucracy to take control so like i said before i think even more than uh nationalists and patriots i think um, religion is a far stronger motivator in people's lives um and in order to have a one world government, you need to oppress Christians and Muslims. And you do that by slowly uh, using bureaucracy and to create rules um, that prevent people from fighting back. Um, that get Can people... you give me an example of that? I'm trying to think one that's not like a powder keg. The first <laughs> one that jumps to mind, I mean, has to do with, uh, I mean, whatever, they're all powder kegs, uh, would have to do with uh, things like forcing Christians to make cakes for gay weddings and in general to oh, part, yeah. part participate in homosexual weddings, right? Another one would be forcing Christians to pay for, who are who are pro-life, to pay for abortions, and Muslims for that matter. Muslims are just as opposed to gay marriage and abortions in general as, as uh, a lot of Christians are. So those are just a couple examples. Um, also pushing forward a inter interfaith uh, new religion like uh, Unitarianism, or Baha'i pushing forward the narrative that all that all religions are the same, and encouraging people to uh, buy into that. Which for again for a lot of religions like especially Hinduism and paganism is not really a problem, but for monotheistic religions, uh, it's completely antithetical to what all of their traditions teach. So I think yeah I think punishing people for expressing their religion. Uh, in the couple of examples, and those are, you know, those are things that we have to, we would have to talk about <laughs> a lot to, you know, yeah. would say that's, that's not, that's not hurting someone's religion. That's just, you know, making sure that gay people can be happy. Well, in short, I beg to differ. I think that forcing um, someone to participate in something they believe is directly contrary to the religion is an infringement on their right to religion. But um, yeah, also pushing forward this idea that all religions are the same is a way for people to give up their, specifically Christians and Muslims, to give up their objections to a one-world government. 
I could I, I can roll with you on what you're saying. I just find it really hard, even in the example of promoting something like that and saying that everybody's religion is is pretty much the same thing. I just there's so many radicals on both sides for for that to happen, in my opinion, uh, for people to actually come to that universal agreement that we're, we're all pretty much the same religion wise. And I think. In contemporary times, it's 2019. I think people are becoming more and more enlightened, especially with the advent of the internet and the sharing of ideas. Um, people are starting to realize there's a lot of similarities with religion. But um, I just I find it hard to even think that we we could just you know at one point say, yeah, religion is pretty much all the same, and we should unify um, through that. But no, I'm I'm happy to have a, a difference in this conversation where where we can both. Have, have differing ideas. That's one thing that you and I have pretty similar ideas on a lot of things, or, or at least we're open to each other's ideas. But when we have a difference in opinion, I think that's that's really gold, and I think that's what makes for a really good conversation. So, so we've basically said that, um, and we agree that one of one of the problems with becoming a, a huge nation state, or or you know, one of the problems with globalism, is that well, one, I don't think people are, are really going to go for it but there are so many people that do think that that that's that's the way to go do you think it's an honest threat do you think this conversation holds weight do you think we are of in any way do you think there is a threat of us possibly going that way oh yeah i do uh, absolutely 100 percent uh think really? that yeah yeah the more um international agreements that individual nations make which cede their uh, sovereignty to international bodies, um, the closer and closer we get to a one-world government. Now, it maybe maybe I could say that there won't ever be a time when there is a single global government, but I think there will be there much more likely could be a time when we get to maybe even as few as ten international bodies um, ruling over regions. You know, you could div divide up uh, Asia into a couple regions. Um, then you have Europe, Africa, North America, South America, Australia, and, you know, however many it is, and just say that we're going to treat these all the same. And, uh, and then when you have 10 leaders from each of those 10 regions and they come together, then you've got a council of 10. You've got like a basically a global oligarchy. And then if one person out of those 10 becomes the executive, especially you know, if it's an odd, if it's an if it's an odd number, maybe one person won't rise to preeminence because um, they'll have a tiebreaker. But you know, <laughs> if not, if it's an even number, then you need an executive to break a tie. Um, See, I was thinking that it wasn't possible, but now you got me thinking that maybe it is an honest issue that we're facing because with Brexit happening and then breaking away and America being so steadfast on border security and having a national identity. And China, you just, you noted about China. Uh, I joked about it, but honestly, I, I'm in the same camp as you. They're, they're pretty uh, patriotic as well. With these countries, and they're, they're pretty big powers, claiming that, you know, we are our own self, they must be fighting against something. And that something is probably the advent of a global government. Um, the UN, you mentioned earlier, we didn't we didn't talk about the pros and cons of it at all, really. But I know, uh, again, I know you have huge issues with with the UN. But England left for a reason. 
it's not like it was all rainbows and fairies in the UN. They, you know, like I said, with the devil's advocate role, there's definitely positives with it, but there's a lot of fucking problems with it. And that's why they left. Um, so maybe there is a lot of weight with that. Maybe people are trying, whether we like it or not, trying to come together as one. Right. Um, maybe the internet plays a huge role in that as well. Maybe with the sharing of ideas, people are starting to say, well, you know, we're sharing everything online anyway. Um, and that's a huge part of our day. I mean, you and I probably get on the internet 50 times a day through our phone and laptops and everything else we use. Uh, we're not in the minority. I guarantee that maybe that is a huge issue. I'm just, I'm just trying to put weight on what we're talking about. Is it something to be worried about? Well, one of, uh, President Trump's first actions was to strike down the TPP and the uh, the TTIP. So the TPP was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? Uh, and the TTIP was the Trans-Atlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Uh, these were two kind of NAFTA-like deals, basically rules that would guide corporate and business actions between nations across the Atlantic and across the Pacific. And they were pretty mortifying having to do with like internet censorship and granting extra rights to gigantic transnational corporations, stripping away their responsibility to adhere to um, scary stuff, man, human rights and things like that. So even more simply put, those are a couple of really fine points, but even more simply put, just, just look at the world over the past 100, 200, 300 years. Is it more or less connected? Every single day, the world is more connected in terms of globalization, in terms of how much trade we do, which again is fine. But I in mean, terms of- John, sport, a great example is this podcast. You're, we're on two different time zones. It's, it's mm. right now noon in my country and it's close to midnight, if not midnight in, in America. And here we are talking on a crystal clear Skype um, communication outlet and we're, we're able to share ideas. We're, we're trading ideas as we speak. Right. And again, that's like, that's not something I have a problem with. I have a problem with the globalism and um, just to prove that that's a problem. Look, just think of it in, in an abstract sense. As there over and over and over again in the history of the world, people have sought to control as much of it as they possibly could. Alexander the Great, uh, derived, like the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, Napoleon, the Nazis. Who, what makes you think that it's not going to happen again? What makes you think it's not going to happen right now? What is America? America is basically an empire. We call ourselves the world police, but we're really trying to, you know, that's an, that's a form of imperialism. Russia is expanding. Russia took over uh, Georgia. ISIS was an attempt to take over the world, although it didn't get too far. So <laughs> it's just the, the, the thing to keep in mind with, with war-like expansion is, or any kind of expansion, economic expansion, is that the tools, the, the weapons, keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, and we've got nuclear bombs. We've got bombs that are even more powerful than nuclear bombs. We've got, or what do they call them? Hydrogen bombs. And in, in, in the soft weapons, so to speak, we have, you know, applications that go on every single person's phone that we know spy on them, you know, no matter what you do. Uh, your smartphone can be used to spy on you. So um, I, I think it's naive to think that that now it's easier than ever for someone to take over the world and that it's not going to happen. So in the beginning of this podcast, I, I did a little short soundbite of Trump 
um, talking at a speech and talking at an event. And he talks about nationalism. And um, I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but he said, they have a word. It's sort of become old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really? We're not supposed to use that word. And you know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? Nationalist. Use that word. Use that word. So in contemporary times, we've got Trump as the leader of one of the most the most powerful, one of the most powerful countries in the world, um, at least of, of our generation. Um, and we have a president who's now using the word nationalist freely, and he's actually promoting other Americans to use that term as well. How do you feel about that? I mean, you've separated it, you've separated the definition of the word nationalist into two different camps. What do you think he means by that? Do you think he means more patriot? Do you think he's going more with, uh, you know, we need to look after ourselves first kind of like the the plane analogy you know if, if you're high up in the sky they always tell you you know if those masks drop down from the ceiling uh you grab yours first before you help anybody else do you think that's what he's going with or do you think he's promoting more of a a hard you know america first fuck everybody else yeah i think it's it's a patriotic kind of a nationalism i think the biggest piece of evidence towards that is that he hasn't started any new wars <laughs> He's actually yeah. escalated a lot of wars around the world that America has been involved in. I wish he would do more. Um, so, you know, I, again, I think that's the biggest piece. Uh, at the same time, you know, he's for building a wall between us and Mexico. But, um, you know, as we've discussed over and over again, putting up a wall doesn't mean that you hate your neighbor. It just means that you want to keep your family safe. So yep. uh, that's how I see it. And um, at the same time. Do you time, think that's how he sees it? Yeah, I, I think that is how he sees it. I can't be sure, obviously, but yeah. um, just judging on his actions, I, I don't see him as, I mean, if the difference, the main difference that we're talking about is between someone who wants to protect their nation and someone who wants their nation to rule the world, uh, I would say it seems like Trump has, again, scaled back on America overtly exerting its force over other nations, at least, especially in terms of military. He's been a really aggressive with his economic policy that is that is a subject that i <laughs> uh, i wasn't prepared to talk about off the top of my head uh, no that's okay that's okay i like the candidness of it um yeah. so i i had a conversation with my brother actually um i go to the states every well it's actually about every two years now um but last time i was back i was back for about two weeks and my brother and i got really heated in a trump and I told him, you know, my stance on Trump has always been kind of, um, well, it's been, it's, it's wavered definitely, but, um, and I, I don't want to talk about Trump too much, but I think it's, it's important with the, the whole nationalist and globalist conversation. But he was talking, my brother was talking about how, um, he said, you know, Will, he was like, if Trump were to get the keys to the castle of the world, do you think it would be a good thing? You know, if we, he said, if we have on our hands, uh, one giant nation of the world and one government and Trump was at the helm, do you think that would be good? And I got to say, honestly, no, I, th I think there's a certain amount of ego that Trump has and he doesn't like to admit when he's wrong, you know, swinging it back around to that communication that you talked about. Trump never apologizes. Um, he never accepts other opinions. I, I think he definitely listens, but I don't know if he is willing to change his stance on things. Um, but, you know, if you looked at like someone like Obama, and I know how you feel about Obama and, and the left, but 
I would feel much more comfortable with someone like Obama being at the ha- the helm of of you know the the world as opposed to someone like Trump. And that's that's the thing that scares me about Trump is, you know, I know he talks about America and America first and make America great again. But if he were to get more power, someone like Trump would not be I'd not be comfortable with that. I wouldn't be comfortable with Putin or King Jong Un or any of these guys. Um, there's just there's a certain um, behavior or, or characteristic about him that just kind of scares me. You know, I, I think a lot of Trump's policies are actually good and they're positive, the, the more of his conservative viewpoints. But um, I think he's fighting when we, when we we bring it back to this quote. I think he's fighting for America, and I think what he's trying to say there is I, I tend to agree with you. Is he's more saying we're more we should be more about patriotism. We should be more about let's fix what we got inside our 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 borders than what's outside of the borders. Um, I don't think there's malice involved with what he's saying. I don't think he's telling other countries to go fuck themselves. I think what he's saying is like, let's protect and maintain what we got before we look at what other people are doing. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. I wouldn't want Trump for a world president. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't no. want, but I mean, the kind of the whole point of my whole point with this conversation has been, I don't want any world president. So um, yes. obviously I wouldn't want Obama either. Uh, I would not want Obama over Trump if I had to choose between the two. I guess I would take Trump, but I I think that's almost kind of like saying, well, I'd rather drink um, cyanide than arsenic. They're both just gonna, they're both both are gonna kill you in the end. Um, that's why we have a system where um, we change presidents uh, frequently, um, and that's why we have a system where we don't control the entire world. So, so yeah. That's great. I I think this is a perfect time to stop. I think we've covered everything. And I, I, I would say to, to kind of cap this off, I think the big difference is in definition. And you've, you've separated, you've outlined four definitions that are super big. And, and people should really look it up. And they should really do more research, including myself. I've only scratched the surface. Um, I think you have too. And I think we've educated ourselves quite a bit on this. Um, I got a question for you, John. Um, if you could have anybody as, as a world leader, who would it be? Myself. <laughs> um, I'm going with Bob Ross. I think Bob Ross would be just supreme. Um, he'd be really into the liberal arts. Um, he'd be into making happy little infrastructure and, um, pretty, pretty little economies. Um, yeah. Or I guess one economy. <laughs> yeah, happy little totalitarian world. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is there anything else you want to touch on? Uh, nope. Thanks for listening, peeps. Yeah. Um, oh, check us out on Twitter. What What is the Twitter account exactly, John? The Twitter account is look it up. Period. End of story. <laughs> Okay, oh, great. I'm sorry, that wasn't even correct. It's Look It Up Podcast. Pardon me. <laughs> okay, yeah, check us out. Look It Up Podcast. Um, if you guys want to get a hold of us, you can do it through SoundCloud or Apple Music. Make sure to like, subscribe, rate, all that stuff. Um, we're also now on Spotify, so you can go check that out. Um, we are global, John. Our, our ideas are being shared with everyone. 
It's almost like we're we're seeing the future. We're part of the future. We are the future. You have just been listening to Look It Up with John Tristan and Will Langston, a weekly podcast written and produced by John Tristan and Will Langston in association with the Nimble Navigator. You can like, subscribe, and rate Look It Up on iTunes or SoundCloud. And remember, if you want to know the secrets of the world, look it up. <laughs>